Well, well, well. Hello, you lovely little Roz, and welcome back to episode 12 of the Careers Mayor podcast. Can you believe that, Jacob? I can believe it. And they're not really welcoming them back to episode 12 because this will be the first time. Unless they're listening to it again, in which case, welcome back to episode 12. Do you want me to do it again? <laughs> no. No, I don't. Are you sure? I don't want to erase your mistakes, Jordan. You need to learn from them. Welcome back to every episode because I'm sure you've listened to it already. You should have done. Yes. You started your journey listening to Charisma by listening to episode 185 <laughs> with special guest, the reanimated corpse of Tutankhamun. And then you thought, ah, I'm going to listen to the whole back catalogue. And here you are in episode 12 with. Chris Silla. Yeah, Chris Silla and her wonderful drums. And I know what you're probably thinking. What do you mean wonderful drums? Well, you should know because you've already listened to this episode. So you've clearly got a bad memory. Yeah, um, so you tell us. Yeah. You tell us what Chris Silla does. No, go on. Let's wait, Jacob. So you don't know, do you? You've forgotten. So yeah. pathetic. It's probably best to just listen to it again. Yeah, well, we know, Jordan, since we have gone to the trouble of listening to the episode 500 times, <laughs> that, like everyone should, <laughs> that Chris is a community musician. Yeah, and I think you're really going to like this one. It was a really, really, really interesting conversation we had with Chris. And if you're lucky and you listen all the way to the end, you might even get a little uh, a little treat from Chris herself. A little treat from Chris and her djembe drums. Damn these lips of ours. We've said too much. Go on. Go on, Jacob. Chuck we on can't yet. spoil anything. They've already <laughs> all listened to it many hundreds of times, Jordan. So don't worry. A little head there. Should we just cut you start? Yeah, go on then. Hello, Chris. Welcome very, welcome very much. I was about to say, welcome, welcome very to, much. welcome very much, and thank you to the Careers Man <laughs> podcast. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm great, thank you. I've had a Good. very nice day, not doing anything very much at all, apart from chatting and catching up with people and doing a bit of pre-departure organisation. So it's been yes, really you nice. said you're about to head off to. Gambia, or the yes, Gambia, as I've often Gambia. heard it it's said. Technically speaking, it's the Gambia, yes. The Gambia is often referred to as West Africa for beginners. <laughs> um, I mean, I am not a beginner. Yeah, what's, what's, the, uh, what's the expert level African countries? Oh, blimey, something really tricky, I guess. Like, I don't know. I mean, Guinea, which is where my husband is from, is quite tricky if you're an independent traveller. I wouldn't... Mm. go to Guinea on my own. It kind of depends where there's political instability as well. And, and Guinea, as in the, the, the Republic of Guinea, is quite volatile. You can only fly into the capital and demos become riots quite quickly. Mm. Whereas somewhere like the Gambia, even when there was a coup, it was, it was, it was very polite, mm. largely. <laughs> so what are you going to be doing in the Gambia? 
I am going to be visiting some old friends because we did, in 2013, we made a CD in the Gambia. And some of the musicians that I used to work with are still there. So I'm going to be visiting them and their families. And I'm going to visit a couple of school projects that, you know, a friend of mine got an MBE two days ago for services to education in the Gambia. And I've got a couple of friends with school projects out there. I'm going to have a little tourist holiday on the river and I hope I'm going to see hippopotami. I've never seen a hippo before. And then I'm going to go to Senegal and again visit some old friends. I mean, one of the things when I go to visit, sometimes I go with my husband, but this time I'm going on my own, is musicians I've worked with and some of the kids of musicians I've worked with or people who've been drum makers or instrument makers for me. We have a a day out, a kind of beach day out. So we take, we collect everybody's kids and we have this, I mean, the last time we did it, we were 29 people. There was a lot of us. <laughs> we just that must have make this... you popular with the parents. Oh, it really, I mean, take it really them, does. Take them. take them, please take them. <laughs> and they don't get much chance to do stuff like that because it is quite poor. So, and because we've mm. done it for years and years now, you know, we can talk about when we did it last year and there'll be some new kids born. And, you know, do you remember when Bubba was afraid of the sea? Or do you remember when, you know, Asanatu mm. was sick? Or, you know, it's, it's a kind of lovely annual event. I mean, it it's, mm. didn't happen in COVID because couldn't go. And some of those people, you know, I mean, the guy that I'm going to be staying with and his family, we feel like we're sister and brother to each other. And our relationship goes back, you know, more than 20 years now. So some very strong connections. That's amazing. So it's a combination of kind of work. I'm, I'm also wanting to... Get some new material, collect some more rhythms, collect some songs. I'm developing a set of resources called Everyday Africa for teaching with, and I, you know, I want some little bits of video for that, and some maybe some interviews with people. Might try and do a bit more writing on my blog. So it's a combination of work and and holiday, and just having because I'm going for five weeks. I'm going for quite a long time this time, and I just want a bit of time to hang out with people. What are the what are the languages uh, there? Uh, is it English and French, or or well, are there tribal in, languages as well? There's lots of tribal languages. English is is the colonial language in Gambia. French is the colonial language in Senegal. And then you've got a whole variety of tribal languages. I don't know how many tribal languages there are, but there are at least five main tribal languages. There's Mandinka. There's Wolof. There's Jola. There's Serahu. I mean, Wolof is one of the languages they call a market language. So a lot of people, even if they're not Wolof, can speak Wolof. I mean, in, mm. in Guinea, Susu is a similar thing. My husband is a Susu tribally, but a lot of people speak Susu. And, and it's the language in which you kind of say, you know, how much is that? And kind of, oh, far too much, flouts off. <laughs> because um, everything is, is <laughs> negotiable. You know, you, there's a lot more negotiating about... You don't have fixed prices um, and things. I mean, I don't speak any of the languages properly. I can sing in some of them. I've got kind of fixed and I can say things like, you know, that meal was delicious. And I mean, when I first went to the Gambia and I was learning all off, um, 
I told a lot of women that I looked great in that dress because I was getting my tits. (laughs) (laughs) And what a beautiful dress I was wearing and how good a dancer I was. So we're getting an idea, I think, of um, of of what you do now. Although obviously, there's a lot more to go into, but um, mm. so it'd be good to travel back in time now to okay, yeah. Um, what that. was going on? How did you see your life panning out, or were you blissfully uh, uninterested and just going with the flow, or what were you like back then? When I was growing up, when I was a little girl, I really wanted to be a fisherman, a trawler <laughs> fisherman. Oh and, right! Okay. So not not Which, like out on a little boat with a stick. No, you wanted I wanted to, to work. I really yeah. I wanted to work on a trawler, and I really, really wanted to do that for for years. I can't remember how old I was, but it was a real big thing. And somebody pointed out to me when I was about ten or eleven or something that I couldn't do that because I was a girl. And well, I think it was one. Fair. No, but I think it was one of my <laughs> first kind of understandings of all fishermen and men. There won't be any toilets for you. You know. <laughs> was kind of some sort of thing like that and it it was the first time that I'd really thought about that gender difference I suppose as as a kid and then I had a real hero worship thing for Jacques Cousteau you might be a bit too young to know who Jacques Cousteau I know the name but yeah uh, beyond that I'm foggy if you think about David Attenborough and how people feel about David Attenborough Jacques Cousteau was a was a scuba diver and it was, it was, I suppose, the first kind of television, sort of natural history television. It was all underwater. So he was this, you know, extraordinary kind of groundbreaking figure. So then I really wanted to do marine biology. But unfortunately, it turned out that I was really bad at science and maths. So that kind of counted out marine biology, I suppose. So it's like, oh, I can't do that because I'm rubbish at it. You know, that I, that I wasn't a science-based kind of person. I mean, I, I went to grammar school. I was the last year of the 11 plus. We weren't posh. I felt a bit fish out of watery in grammar school because people were posh and had pianos and things like that, which we didn't have. So then I got more interested in kind of art. In sixth form, I got very interested in ceramics and I thought that I might do an art degree. Um then I got pregnant. My daughter was born in 1982, so I just finished my A-levels. So then I did three. I had this very naive idea, you know, that I could be a single parent and and just carry on with everything. Um, and after about a week, you realise that you really can't do that. It's, <laughs> it's just absolutely not how it works at all, unless you've got, you know, nannies and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Absolutely, yeah. So I had 18 months as a full-time mother with her. And then I went back to college. I went back to being a mature student. I was a very young, mature student. You know, everybody else was in their 30s and I was in my early 20s by then. And then and I always thought I was quite stupid, really. Um, although actually I should have noticed that I passed the 11 plus, so probably I wasn't that thick. What kind of examination was it? Oh, the 11... I, I don't remember it much. It, it's maybe sort of problem-solvy, but obviously mm. not with a high maths component. I mean, there was there was that educational idea at the time that there were three different kinds of intelligence. There was the academic, the technical, and what they called the concrete. 
which is what we would call practical. I get, you know, when you say things like people are good with their hands, you know, I mean, I've got friends who are carpenters or, you know, I mean, I, I'm rubbish at that kind of thing, although obviously I, I can reskin drums, so I'm not entirely rubbish, but it's a different set of skills, isn't it? I, you know, I'm quite intellectual in lots of ways and, and not mm. so good with my hands, but there was this theory at that point that there were sort of three kinds of intelligence and you would just filter kids. And then it sort of became almost a system of if you were bright, you passed your 11 plus and you went to grammar school. And if you were less bright, you went to comprehensive. And there weren't that many technical schools built. Well, that was always the big problem, wasn't it? Is that yeah. the, the yeah. whole system was let down by the fact they didn't put enough into the secondary moderns. Because if no. they'd if they'd made them really great technical schools, then they it, could have had all sorts of poor kids going on and going on and being academic or going on and you know, like even now, if you uh, you know, if you're working class now and you um, have the good fortune to have the opportunity to train as an electrician or a plumber or something like that then you're pretty much set for life you know because a lot of people like me wouldn't want to do that job you know we'd look down on it when we were 18 and thinking what we're going to do but those kind and especially skilled manual jobs like boat building or carpentry or something like that um, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned boats because I've been looking for an opportunity to bring us back to the thing you said about being a tr- working on a trawler because <laughs> I'm still fascinated by that. <laughs> um, I, just, I don't know where that came from. It's just a re- you know, it's a thing as a small child that I just really wanted to do, and it completely went away. And then, as I say, mm. it got replaced by the idea of marine biology. And did then you I... did you did you like read a kids' book about? A fisherman, or was it something like that? I don't know. Did you grow up near the sea? I grew up in Derby, about as far from the sea as (laughs) you can get in any direction. (laughs) Well, maybe that's why then you were. You, you, you were longing. smelt, smelt yeah. the freedom of the sea. <laughs> I must, yeah. I mean, I've, I lived for 35 years in Brighton, so I did go to the sea in the end. But well, you I got your hit know. eventually, yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating, isn't it? That kind of, I don't know where that came from, but it was, I mean, my, my dad used to do some fishing. And, and when I was a kid, we had a caravan and a, and a boat and we used to go out mackerel fishing. So maybe there was something about the feel of being on the boat that I liked mm. or... I mean, I didn't like the fish dying because there's this very sort of physical thing. So when you go fishing, I don't know if you've caught fish, where you get this beautiful, shiny thing. And as it dies, it stops being beautiful and shiny. And you can really sort of feel the life force going out of it. And that actually used to quite upset me. So it was interesting that I decided that that's what I wanted to do. But maybe it was something about how I felt in boats that I like, you know, I mean, I didn't get a lot of chance to be in boats, but when we were. You know, my dad worked at Rolls-Royce and we used to go on holiday to the caravan for two weeks every year. And I must have just really liked how it felt. I mean, that's good enough at that age, isn't it? If you think, think about so. what you want to yeah. do, it's just, when do I feel nice? When do I feel safe and comfortable? And I think, actually, I've lived my whole life like that. You know, I mean, the job that I do now, it feels nice. I like it. You know, I, I specialise in West African percussion. I drum. I play, you know, it, it, it's how it fit. I, I like the feel of what I mm. do. And I, I suppose, you know, I've changed direction quite a lot of times in my life. And I suppose it's always been a bit like that, really. It's like, I like this, it feels great. And when I don't like it anymore, I don't do it, even if it might remain sensible kind of thing. So you went through uni 
you learned a lot. Did you, did you say sociology, Chris? Yeah, I did sociology. Because yeah. I also did sociology. Um, and then what, what came after that? And then what came after that was teaching. Um, oh, straight away? Yeah, straight away. Um, I, I did an MA after my BA. I did it part-time. I did it at the University of Kent in Canterbury, which is posh. I have an MA in women's studies, which I really like. It should be a mistress, shouldn't it? Not a master's. <laughs> and yeah, I started, I was originally going to kind of carry on with the academic thing and do a PhD and go into the, you know, like you do enology and be a doctor. Partly because I, when people say, is it miss or missus? I wanted to be able to say, actually, it's doctor. But I never got that far. And so I started teaching. My very first teaching job was in a tertiary college in Lewis, which is near Brighton. And I got it by sheer bravado because when he said I'd done two sessions in a private tutor college and it was like, how long have you been teaching for? It was precisely a week. Um, and so I taught A-level sociology and what was then O-level sociology. And I had a whole variety of different teaching jobs they were they were never permanent contracts they were always termly contracts so it was always very insecure work um sometimes they were yearly and I started working for the um WEA the Workers Educational Association doing different kind of sociology type courses and women's studies type courses I also taught on access courses and I taught study skills on access courses and also kind of methodology so you know look I mean I, I don't having done sociology and not as we've said psychology and so therefore having terrible maths I didn't teach stats and my speciality or what sort of became my speciality was what in those days was called adult returners so you know people who were coming to study from jobs or who were wanting to study in order to get a bit further in a job. So a lot of nurses and fast track A-levels, fast track A-levels. So teaching A-level in a year to, you know, largely mature students. So I did about four years of that, um, different colleges, different, so a lot of running around. I also taught at Worthing Sixth Form College, little bit at the University of Sussex on their access courses um, and a bit actually I did a bit of media stuff I can't know what the course was called there were a couple of media courses and they were they were sort of feminist style media courses of you know they had they had titles like deconstructing the male gaze you know that kind of that kind of stuff but then when, you don't put it back together again no you don't put it back together again you know you want it to be broken really Jacob <laughs> on the floor in pieces and then you want to stamp on it really um and I got to, for the Workers' Educational Association, I was teaching evening classes and I got to design some of my own courses, which was fun. And I did that for about four or five years. I couldn't remember exactly. And then I got glandular fever and I was very, very poorly. And then I got what is now called ME and I couldn't work. Hmm. So I had a period of time where I was very poorly. Not only could I not walk, work, but I couldn't bloody think. You know, and I'd always been a person who was a very intellectual, very kind of analysis driven person. And I, I could barely get to the end of a sentence. Mm. So that was a very scary. Is, 
Yeah, what is it? I mean, I, I sort of know what ME is, but I but but it's, not exactly. It's what's called chronic fatigue syndrome. So you know you and it's a difficult illness because people tend to think that you're faking it. Mm. You know, they say things like, "Oh yes, I get very tired too." And when I had it, it, it wasn't quite so well known. I mean, I was very lucky because I had a an excellent GP who said, there is something wrong with you. Or you are not just imagining, you know, you're not just taking mm. hypochondria to a new level kind of thing. So you get a lot of, I mean, there are words now like brain fog. You know, I, I, I would get very muddled. I couldn't read. I couldn't concentrate. I would get very tired. You know, I would go down the road to the post office and I'd have to stop and sit down a couple of times. I was scarily tired. And I had about three very, very, very bad years where I was largely bed-based. Couldn't really do very three much at years. all. Wow. And social welfare in those days, you got something called incapacity benefit. But you, a bit like with some of the universal credit stuff these days, you had to prove that you were genuinely ill and that you weren't just sponging off the state and faking it. So you know, they were nasty kind of examinations and kind of, you know, how far can you walk without getting tired and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But yes, that, the kind of politics in those days, there was incapacity benefit. And then a bit like now, it's the same problem with universal credit, isn't it? Is when you are getting better, but not entirely well, there is that difficult thing about working and managing working and how the state feels you ought to work and what you're allowed benefits for, and it's all a bit tricky. So I didn't go back into academia. I didn't go back into teaching because I felt it was probably a bit too high pressured. And also times had moved on a bit and I never had a teaching qualification, which didn't matter at the point that I started teaching, but then suddenly started mattering. You know, it's like, oh, I've <laughs> Five years experience, but no piece of paper. Well, that is interesting because even when you said that, I went, Oh, you didn't have a qualification. Because yeah, to our I generation, didn't. it's like the piece of paper is God. It's all powerful yeah. piece of. I mean, you know, since the expansion of the universities, it really is like that because yeah, so many young people have one of these things. That's, yeah. Everyone has them, which makes them quite a lot more meaningless than they were back when only a few people went to university. I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? I've got a degree and an ME. <clears throat> Uh, sorry. Oh, look, that was a Freudian slip. A degree <laughs> and an MA. <laughs> Is that what you I said have... in the interview? I've got a degree and MA. <laughs> I've got a degree when and can... ME. Yeah. When can I start? Yeah, when shall I begin? <laughs> <laughs> What is it called these days? <laughs> lived experience, isn't it? I have That's lived it, experience yeah. because the job that I do now, which is that I'm a community musician, I also have no no paper qualifications at all for that. So it's it's an interesting part, isn't it, of of my life really? That you know, although I have a degree and an MA, I don't actually have bit of paper that says that I'm allowed to do the thing that I do. I do have a bit of paper that says that I am a trained massage therapist because that's what I did next ah lovely transition there Chris I appreciate yeah. that <laughs> yeah. so I it was something I'd always done oh. but I didn't have a qualification for I'd, I'd always done you know a bit of massage with my friends and 
I trained, I, I did it very slowly over a period of two years while I was recovering. And I did anatomy and physiology, which you have to do to get qualified and insured. And then I did um, an ITEC Swedish style massage, which is the kind of basic qualification and got insurance and started to work some from home. I worked part-time in a sports centre at Sussex University, actually. Can, can I just ask about the process of getting a, a massage qualification? What I'm imagining is that you massage the, like, the examiner. <laughs> no, you don't do that. That would be interesting. Um, you yeah. massage other students. You swap. Okay. And the examiner, because I also then did some examining. Um, okay. And the massage... That, that probably would be the most direct way of doing it, wouldn't it? Is the, the examiner walks in and just says, give me a massage. And if but so, then, then have... that's, that's my dream job. <laughs> but then you'd have 21 people giving you a massage yeah, in one day. Exactly. Brilliant. And you'd just that, not be able that, to that judge by about... That would yeah. wouldn't it? <laughs> well, also, you wouldn't be able to think. You'd be so relaxed. Wouldn't you? It's like, oh, yeah, fine. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're all right. You might have you're skipped just... my toes, but, you know, yeah. Fine. You're all you're all trying to get to the back of the queue. Like, please let me be last. Please let me be <laughs> <Yeah>. last. <laughs> During that time, I got quite interested in West African percussion, and I did that as a hobby. Where did that passion come from? That's an interesting question, isn't it? I used to go to. Do you know the WOMAD festival? There's a really big festival called WOMAD, which is World of Music and Dance. It was started by Phil Collins. It was what in those days was called world music. You know, so you would see really interesting. You might see kind of Tibetan throat singing, you know, and kind of Japanese taiko drumming. And that's where I first came across djembe playing. And I just really liked it. And then I found out there was a group in Brighton and I joined it and I liked it a lot. And I started doing more of it and I really liked it. And then I started teaching it a bit. And then I went to the Gambia for the first time in the year 2000. My grandmother died and left me some money. And I went on a musical holiday to do drumming for two weeks. And since then, I've done more and more and more percussion and less and less massage. But I suppose. In a way, similar techniques, like sort of tapping hands. on something with your hands. Yeah, yeah. hitting things with your hands. hands. Yeah. yeah, like the yeah. the thing where you could kind of do little karate chops yeah. on someone's yeah. back. <laughs> yeah. You just turn your hands around 90 to yeah. sort of 45 degrees. Yeah, instead of that yeah. way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> had you ever played instruments before? I had a very brief and disastrous relationship with the violin <laughs> in the beginning of secondary school. Um, did it burst into flames or something? I wish it did. I used, I used, to, I used to hope that a string would break because I hated it so much and I was so bad at it. And it was so, you know, that that was probably what was available. So it was learning music was thought, you know, it's a good thing to learn an instrument. And I mean, I I don't think I was offered drums. I think if I'd been offered drums at that point, I'd have gone for drums. But I don't remember being given a choice. You know, maybe the violin was all my school had left. I really, I really hated it. I really hated it. And I 
gave it up as soon as I was allowed. You know, I don't think I even did a year's worth of, of lessons and I, I just really had mm. to learn. I was really bad at it. Um, and did you think then that music wasn't for you at all? Like no, I just thought I couldn't do it. It was like maths. Mm. I just thought I was rubbish at it. I couldn't do it, you know. And and I I like to sing. I'd always been like to sing. But I was one of those kids in the choir who, you know, they used to say, can you mime? Because, you you know, <laughs> you, you're too loud and you're out of tune. Um, and it's like you're very enthusiastic, but you're rubbish. So just mime. <laughs> so I had never thought of myself as a musical person. And I think that's where rhythm is very attractive and and you know i i'm a community musician these days and it's it's what i do and that's how people feel about it it's kind of people say oh i can't do music you know and then, then we'll play something together and it's like this is a rhythm that we've made and and you can do it because look you're doing it and it brings a great deal of joy and i think that's the process that happened to me it was kind of like oh actually i can do this and i really like it and we're kind of back to what we were talking about at the beginning that I liked the art, you know, I'd, it made me feel that I liked, I like, you know, what I do and massage is the same, I guess. I mean, I've got arthritis a bit in my hands now, so it's not quite as, but I, I like the feeling of it. I like how it makes me feel. It makes me happy. And it also makes other people happy. And through percussion, particularly through djembe drumming, it's like, oh, this is something I can do. And it's a group activity. It's not something you do on your own. You know, it's very connected to other people. And all of those teaching skills, because in a way, if you've done teaching, you can kind of teach almost anything, can't you? Because you know how to organise groups, you know how to organise whatever material you're disseminating, you know how, you know how people learn. And, you know, and because a lot of my specialities had always been sort of mature students and returners and, you know, I mean, a lot of the work I do now is SEN, which is special educational needs. I also do groups. Um, I do quite a lot of music work with groups of people with dementia. You know, it's very connecting. So how does, well, first of all, I guess, what is a djembe drum exactly and why? what makes it special or unique? But then... How does it have those applications? Well, a djembe drum is a West African drum. It's a very particular kind of drum. It's sort of shaped like an egg cup. So you've got a bowl and a stem. That's an easy, for people listening, that's an easy thing to visualise, isn't it? An egg cup. And it's made of different kinds of wood, depending on which country it comes from, and generally goat skin. It used to be just played in, in West Africa and not really anywhere else. And it's interestingly become the most played drum in the West now. It's come over from West Africa. And I think people like drumming for all kinds of reasons. I mean, we have drumming in our own traditions, don't we? But they're often it's often military or in the scouts or kind of marching bands, that sort of hmm. stuff. and. Djembe drumming in West African society comes from the village traditions. You know, there are rhythms for planting, there are rhythms for harvest, there are rhythms for celebrations, there are rhythms for weddings. You know, it, it's for something. So it's either for working to or for... So it's it's very much about connecting people. 
we live in an increasingly fragmented and disconnected society, even though we have social media all the time and groups around dementia or different kind of special needs and neurodiversity type groups. Working with rhythm is very connecting and particularly for people who have difficulty, not verbal, you know, you don't have to, you can have a really nice time drumming together. You don't have to talk at all. You know, there are a lot of learned skills on that. I mean, I, the SEN group I work with, the special educational needs group I worked with, we learned lots of things. We learned to take turns, you know, wait for another person. It's your turn to play, then it's somebody else's turn to play. Then it's a, we learned to do things together. We learned to start together and stop together. We learned to play loudly and quietly through and without me doing any verbal instructions about that kind of stuff. And it feels nice. Making a noise feels nice. And being able to control the noise feels nice. I mean, not everybody likes it. It's, you know, djembe is very marmite. People are either like, wow, or they're like, what? Is there something particular about the drum, the type of drum that makes it particularly good for those applications? I think just that there's a lot of possibility with the djembe. You know, you can make a variety of sounds and it's reasonably portable and reasonably easy to play. I mean, technique helps. Whereas, and you and you use your hands. I think there is something very pleasing about interfacing with something with your hands rather than sticks or you know and you're using your whole hand you're not having to kind of play like if you play piano you've got to do quite difficult things with your fingers haven't you and if you play violin you've got to be in a complicated sort of sideways relationship to the instrument whereas you put this in front of you and you you hit it with your hands and I, I think there's something about that, I mean, I work with traditional drums. My drums are all wooden drums with skins on. And a lot of people who do community work work with plastic things now. Well, I don't like that because I think there's something about the organic nature of the percussion that is in its, you know, they're quite beautiful things. You can, I mean, if you want to get spiritual about it, you know, you're working with the spirit of a tree and the spirit of an animal. But you can have discussions about what kind of tree and the feeling of them is is very beautiful. You know, they are nice things to look at, the nice things to handle. My special needs group used to enjoy helping get them out the car. You know, which one do I like best? They all sound different. So you've got a real richness of tone, um, a real richness of different sonic possibilities I suppose I mean I don't just use drums I, I do use other percussive instruments and the percussive frog is incredibly popular in community music it's it's a wonderful uh, the, thing um, the percussive frog yeah <laughs> I love how you very confidently said that probably um, I should have one suspecting yeah, what, that we were going to what, not yeah, know what, what that meant that? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of queer but you you have a frog with a I should have one. I haven't got one because I'm not at home. I'd love to send you a picture, um, although that won't help the listeners, will it? Um, well, we can put it on uh, put Instagram it on. when we yeah. uh, when we post the episode. So well, if, if, you're, if you're if you're listening and you're wondering what that is, go and have a look at our Instagram. And yeah, 
Yeah, look also look story. at mine. If you look at mine, there are lots of pictures of percussive frogs. Ah, I mean, in fact, what's your Instagram? My Instagram uh, is, handle is Tumaranke. Oh, you're gonna have to spell that. I think T O U M M for mother A R A N K E, which is also the name of the band, and it's a Susu word, and it means outsider. Well, I'm looking at I'm looking at these little fellas. And I'm in love. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just looking absolutely. at Google Images. Yeah. They're just yeah. the cutest little things I've ever they seen. They are, yeah. <laughs> they are just, just wonderful, wonderful things. And they sound, you know, you go brr, 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 with the stick, brr, brr, yeah. they sound like frogs. Everybody loves them. <laughs> um, they are, for the, for the community musician, they are the percussive tool of choice. They are utterly, utterly wondrous. I bet um, they're a crowd pleaser, aren't they? They are a massive <laughs> yeah. crowd pleaser. Yeah. They, they really are. Um, <laughs> And I want to dash out and buy one right yes. now. So. Yes, I mean, I wish I'd taken up shares in some percussive frog manufacturing <laughs> company um, because everybody goes, where do I get one? <laughs> I know if you'd thought early on, you could have got in, set up the uh, original manufacturer. Oh, I could. Yeah, I could. It's, it's a real shame that, you know, 10 years ago, I didn't think should've, about this. Should have, would have, Should have, would have, could have, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm. So you went from massaging to jambo drumming, and is that just that's where you've been from that point onward? Or yeah, I mean, else? there was a period of caring for parents, mm. and that, although it's not a job as in a paid job, although it was actually because I was on carers' allowance, so I I spent five years of my life as what is called a family carer, and that probably is the hardest thing of everything I have ever. It was really extraordinarily difficult. And all the skills that I had, you know, you you kind of, I was looking after two elderly people. My dad, my dad had a stroke in 2017, a mild stroke and was was sort of mildly paralysed down the right hand side, which we as a family worked really hard and, and fixed. Anybody who's dealing with elderly people with stroke, I would I would suggest putting a Malteser where they can't quite reach it. It's a fabulous technique because they'll try really hard to reach. So eventually, you know, eventually they reach it. Do you it. tell There's them just... that you've put it there, or do you just leave it there? Yeah, you say there's a Malteser for you. You know, I mean, you move it closer if they re- <laughs> if they really can't do it, you put it in their mouth. But you know, yeah, that does feel a bit of... crawl after a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah you, you wait three years, they still can't get the Malteser. <laughs> You get your revenge for all the times they were horrible to you when you were a child. Um, but all of those kind of little tricks, you know, I mean, we, as a family, we worked really, really hard with him to make make sure he got his mobility back. I mean, his, his right-hand side was never quite as good again, but he could. We used to also give him his electric shaver. And the first time he tried to use it, he took his eyebrows off, you know, but I just mm-hmm. thought he can't hurt himself with it. And, and they're all automatic movements, aren't they? He'd shaved himself every day. Obviously, he was in his mid-80s when he had the stroke. And when he came out of the hospital, I moved. I moved my entire life from Brighton back to Derby to take care of him. And we thought he would probably live about six months, and he lived for five years. So that was quite an extraordinary period. Of, it, it was really hard was really really hard it's it's much harder than parenting partly because 
what you're doing is you're holding a space for death, aren't you? You're not holding a space for, you know, they're going to grow up and leave and, and you're going to watch them do great things and it's all going to be wonderful. You're holding a space for, I mean, my dad didn't want to die in the hospital. You know, he wanted to be in his own home and he did have, he died at home where he wanted to be with us. So he had, you know, it's, it's difficult to say that he had a good death. He had the death he wanted and he was with his family and spent the last part of his life where he wanted to be. You know, I mean, he was also type 2 diabetic and he was quite disabled. He was 96 by the time he died. So, you know. Wow. It's not a bad innings. Pretty good innings, good isn't it? You know, yeah. he'd been an engineer, so we got over various It's like nobody wants to use the Zimmer. It says old git, doesn't it? But if you kind of go, oh, isn't this a clever piece of engineering? <laughs> you know, and 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 we did that with, you know, then we did that with the stairlift, then we did it with the commode, you know, and, and we would we dealt with it by talking about, you know, so we and we would spend a lot of time critiquing kind of disability aids, if you like. I mean, there's anybody who's ever spent any time with wheelchair users knows that most disabled toilets are really badly designed. You have that whole situation of, do I push my wheelchair person in in front of me and then I'm behind that person and I can't help them to the toilet or do I go in backwards? Very often the, the kind of grab rails are in the wrong place in relation to either the loo or the sink, you know, and, and my dad having engineering training one of the ways of getting over the kind of awkwardness and horribleness of that mm. is, is was just just to do a critique of you know this one's and and actually I looked after my dad for so long that he started saying it's a bit shit because I say it's a bit shit, um, <laughs> and he would never have used words like that before you know so it's a bit shit because you know the grab rail is four inches too low and on the wrong wall or whatever <laughs> the particular issue was. And it was just the way that he and I learned to manage all of those difficult sort of personal dignity situations. And as a person gets more and more reliant, you know, I mean, nobody wants anybody else helping them on the toilet, do they? Nobody wants those kind of, you know, when it's a small child or a baby, you, it somehow there's a bit more dignity and also they're, they're going to stop doing it. Whereas when you're looking after elderly people, it's only going to get worse. And we all kind of know about that. And, you know, then there's the difficulty of if you wet yourself or worse and, you know, how does that get dealt with? And just trying to sort of keep a certain amount of dignity, but also a bit of humour. I mean, we had a particular commode that caused a vacuum, so he would get stuck, you know. <laughs> kind of... And all of that sort of thing is, is very difficult. I mean, it's where we're all going, isn't it, if we're lucky enough to get old? Well, yeah. Um, and you've got to find a way of of managing that. In a, and, a, you know, I mean, I took care of my mum too, but it, it's, I think it's harder with father-daughter or probably with mother-son you know, if you're doing that kind of physical servicing of the body. And, I mean, we were very lucky because he retained a certain amount of mobility. He actually died of pneumonia in the end. Um, you know, we went all the way through COVID. And 
and was only sort of completely bedridden for about two weeks. Okay. But you have all of the, you know, the difficulty of trying to help a person move about in a bed and you've got more and more mobility aids and, you know, these things called slide sheets that are difficult to manoeuvre and you can get stuck. And, you know, I mean, we had a care service to help in the last three months of his life also. But it's very physical too. You know, there's a lot of kind of clambering about and trying to get behind. We had one of those hospital beds, you know, that the kind of front bit will go up and the bottom bit will go down and, and all kinds of, of sort of help. But it just is is very difficult. And, and my mum has low-level mental health issues, so very different set of needs. And at one point was quite psychotic which is very difficult to manage because you can't just keep saying to people don't be stupid nobody's spying on you or you know it's because that's real for the person it's happening to isn't it so kind of learning to to manage a person who imagines things without continually just going that's stupid you know that's nonsense or any of the things that you might want to say yeah. It's quite challenging. How do you do that? Um, well, you go into the garage and say those things. <laughs> and then you come back. <laughs> 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 or, you, you know, this is where social media is great, actually, because in those years, or you text your friends and you say, I hate this because, you know, she's just said the man in the next garden's got a telescope and she's always saying that and I hate it. You know, and if you can offload like that, especially... You know, I mean, I, I my phone was so useful in those years because I, I could text people. I had some very supportive friends and I could text people and I could just, you know, I hate doing this. It's crap. I hate it. It's it's unbearable. And, you know, and, mm. and I want to kill them and I'm not allowed. Um, and, That's and... quite interesting because I think if I had a... Um... <laughs> don't joke. Sorry. Don't joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the fact that you say, I want to kill them, but I'm not allowed. Yeah. <laughs> because everybody thinks that. I mean, it's just like the same with small kids when they cry and cry. You think, oh, just stop it. <laughs> yeah. you know, but you're not allowed to kind of express those things because you're supposed to be kind and considerate. And But everybody thinks those things, don't they? Yeah. I mean, people are both inherently wonderful, inherently terrible and very funny. Sometimes all at the same time you know i mean there were some situations with my mum that were both awful and completely hilarious and some of them now i still can't bear to think about and some of them just make me wet myself laughing <laughs> and some of them have both of those feelings attached to them at the same time and i use certainly with my mum I used humour quite. I mean, she used to go into a sort of semi-catatonic state sometimes. And she'd always loved cracker jokes. So I would sometimes just do that. You know, why aren't shellfish any good at charity? No, so I've given the punchline away. Why aren't oysters <laughs> any good at charity? <laughs> because they're shellfish. Because they're shellfish. <laughs> and just something like that would sometimes, you know, break the... The state she was in, sometimes it didn't work, but sometimes it did because she had always really liked cracker jokes. Um, and I would sometimes do, you know, unreasonably good days with her when she could cope. It, it's like, how fast can we get from your anxiety? And then the world will end. 
you know, as a mm. series of kind of leaps of, of humour. And there was, you know, a certain amount of having to go in the garage and have five minutes or, you know, going out and pruning the hedge very, 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 you know, so I'm not doing it. I've got to do it with hand tools because I need. And and that's where I wasn't working very much. But, you know, drumming can be very helpful because you get to hit something really hard. I was going to say, I can imagine that can be quite cathartic doing something like that. Yeah. Um, you could get someone's working... face printed on the drum skin, couldn't you? Exactly. And and when I'm working with groups of, you know, people with carers, the carers nearly always say, you know, that was great. And they do sometimes say, I was imagining somebody's face. <laughs> <laughs> the final section of the podcast is where we work out what your dream job or career would be. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about this because when we had a very brief pre-podcast conversation, I said, it's the job I've got, but better paid, didn't I? Um, yes. And you said, you're not allowed <laughs> yeah. to do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking about it. I was thinking, yeah, if I if I really could do, if, if and if money was no object, because we're talking ideal here, aren't we? So mm-hmm. what I would really like to do, I think, is, is have um, like a community centre that was then linked to a community centre in the Gambia and another one in Guinea and another one in Senegal, where I could run lots of exciting things. So I could do lots of fabulous musical things, but I could also have, I'm combining all my fantasies here, or not quite all, because there's no fishing in it. Don't Uh, worry, I'm (laughs) waiting for my opportunity to bring fish in. Okay, yeah, I'll I'll get you. So then there would be a bookshop with a cafe, you know, I mean, I know that's a thing these days, but, you know, the, the the kind of so there would be lots of lovely things. You know, there'd be a community centre that I wouldn't have to pay the rent for. You know, I would own the building and I'd have loads of staff so I wouldn't it wouldn't be stressful. And we'd be able to do lots of wonderful activities with the local community, but also have links to projects in, in those other countries. And there would be a recording studio so that people could do that kind of thing. And they could do nice podcasts as well. Thank you. And then I could spend half of the year here doing that and the other half of the year in West Africa when it's cold and wet and horrible here, doing the same kind of thing over there. Um, You know, and maybe teach. I mean, not teaching people to make podcasts because I don't know how to do that. But. Well, Chris, I'm going to cut you off because like you said earlier, you said you don't know how to do it. You're doing it right now. <laughs> so, Just like you said to, to the people in your class. Yeah, I'm not doing the technical bit, though. I'm letting you do the editing later. <laughs> so I think I think that's how my dream job would work. But it, it really it would have to be money, no object. I think we assume generally that you can name your price. And and obviously have all the buildings and staff and yeah and what yeah because the difficult bit is scratching about for grant funding so you know not mm. having to do that and so therefore being able to have you know a lovely recording studio with all the state of the art equipment and you know the right kind of sound engineers and a lovely bookshop and cafe with all the lovely things that people like in cafes and you know a, a, maybe a community kitchen to feed people and just. All the lovely things you could imagine. 
maybe the way to tie this all up very neat. I love the idea, by the way. It sounds lovely. And we'll come back to more details about it in a second. But I thought maybe a way that you could fund it, if you're willing, is if we, in this fantasy scenario, gave you the exclusive right to fish in a certain part of, say, the North Sea or the Channel. And maybe for a few days a month, you have to go out on the trawler, <laughs> um, get the fish in. Where there would be a women's in. toilet. There would be a woman's toilet. Yeah. Yep. It, it could be, be an all, all women's all female yeah. trawler, if you like. And all the fish could be female as well, if you like. Oh, I don't know about that, but but yes. I mean, it's, it's all, all male, if you, actually. If you, yeah, actually, if you yeah. prefer the fish to be men, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think <laughs> we skip lightly over the politics of fishing in the North Sea, because that's an entire podcast by itself, isn't it? Oh, um, I mean... Fish mare is is coming yeah. soon. But, <laughs> That's uh, the new spin-off. <laughs> Fish mare. We don't get uh, yeah. hate mail uh, in our Instagram and Twitter feeds forever now. Uh, now, um, at the other end of your career, from when you were wanting to be a fisherman or fisherwoman, do you still have a curiosity about trying it out? No, I really don't. I can't imagine. I, I really would hate it. Oh um, dear. Okay. It's, oh, you would. As you wouldn't yeah. want that to be part of the deal, then that you no, fund I, the centres using no. fishing. No, I, I'm okay. working on a trawler. I just no blood and guts and you know cold wind and feeling seasick and and you know having to negotiate international fishing rights with dangerous Russians. No. <laughs> well, you know, if you're if what you were asking for was less selfless. I might be tempted to push this point a bit, but okay, I'll mm-hmm. give it to you. You don't Without have to go trawler. out on the trawler. <laughs> um, we'll just say that um, if you ever want to try it out just for like one day. Okay. Um, just to say know, you've done it. There'll be, there'll be staff yeah. there to look after the shop while you're away, and you can just say, okay. I'm okay. off out to the North Sea for the day. <laughs> See you uh, later, people. Can you, can you <laughs> take that djembe session for me while I do that? Uh, <laughs> what would you... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what would you call this center? Now that's an interesting question, isn't it? Um cuz you could name it after your I'm going to remind myself of the name and then Oh, Tumaranke. Yeah. That... Yes, I guess yeah, I guess it could be so it could be Tumaranke Kunda because in West African I can't even remember which language it is, and I think it goes across. It means house of. So Tumaranke would outsiders. be the house of Tumaranke, the house of the outsiders, which would be like rather that. a lovely. Yeah, I really that would like work. That. Because yeah. then all of the centres could be called that in all of the countries. Yeah, yeah. And that's got a really nice kind of inclusivity to it, hasn't it? It's like all of you who feel like you don't belong, because we've all got areas where we feel we don't belong, haven't we? Well, yeah, especially I think if you, like you say, if you've got a community kitchen aspect as well, it's going to be yeah. opening up to, well, because I'm at, would you, would there be an aspect of like feeding the local homeless population and things would. like that? Yeah, yeah, there absolutely would. So that, yeah. that sounds like the perfect name, that all encompassing like feeling yeah. of, you know, you're all yeah. welcome here, you know? So something like the real junk food project in Brighton, which does that. Mm. Um but yes, everybody's welcome. Everybody's welcome. And everybody's got something they can give as well as something they might need to take. 
because people, you know, those community kitchen projects are often wonderful, aren't they? Because people find out they can cook or they can do a bit of washing up or they, you know, and, and same with we, we better have an improv room as well or a theatre room because, again, <laughs> that brings out You're really looking out for us here, aren't you, Chris? <laughs> well, not just you, but yeah, I think so. Um, because that's, that's really another nice, area, yeah. isn't it? That you can find that you're yeah. funny or you can tell stories or you can make people laugh. Mm. And that's a massive gift. And amateur dramatics as well is a great community yeah. thing as well, isn't it? So that be a space yeah. for that. So they can be space for that. Um, so it needs to be quite a big building, I think. It does, yeah. I'm imagining, for some reason, mm. I'm imagining it only has one floor, but it's really flat and very sprawling, like a, uh, I don't know, like an old-fashioned school or something. Where it's... Yeah, but nicer than that. Not those colours. I don't want <laughs> institutional colours. Thank you. Murals. On the outside? On the outside and on the inside, I think. Oh, okay. I think lots West of... African... You know, some West African, we could have a, we could have themed rooms. We could have a West African room. We could have primary school kids doing murals. We could have a undersea Jacques Cousteau room with lots of. That's where the fish <laughs> and an aquarium come in. An aquarium, yes. yes. Let's yes. have an aquarium. The fish make it. You've oh, made I'm, it, fish. <laughs> I, I imagine Brighton would probably be the perfect place for that. Or, but I mean, I'm even I think, thinking Bristol because the street art in Bristol is amazing. It it's great, isn't but I'm it? I'm sure it's yeah. the same in Brighton, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and maybe one in Brighton, one in Bristol with a tunnel. We could do you a tunnel. A tunnel with a train or a or some or something else. A minecart. Oh, oh, oh. Something something quick and easy. Yeah, a train. Yeah, some, nice, nice yeah, train. fast train. Nice nice and comfortable. And I guess since this is a fantasy, you could have trains going to Gambia and Senegal. And Guinea. And Senegal, Guinea. Actually, yes. How are you going to get there? Yeah, a whole but, network yeah, of tunnels. Sense. That would yeah, be fast. this is great. The outsider tunnels. Oh, the outsider like tunnels, that. yeah. It's getting that better and better, cool. isn't it? Yeah. You'd probably have to keep the tunnels to the West African country secret, though, because I could imagine that... People will be after you wanting to use it for other purposes. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's just for um, visitors people. and yeah. guests and people yeah. who are... Tumaranke, just for Tumaranke people. I like this, a, an underground network of art. <laughs> yes. A secret oh. underground network a of secret art secret underground network of, yes, <laughs> artists and podcasters and guerrilla <laughs> street art people of various sorts. Well, I can't really think of anything else that would improve this. No, it's pretty got... good, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's pretty I mean, if you're happy, it's a pretty Chris. sweet deal you've got there, Chris. <laughs> if yeah. you're happy, then we're happy. I mean, I'm that's... Uh... Delighted. Can we start next week? Oh, no, I'm going away. <laughs> we... Can we start when I come back? I yeah, come back. Yeah, the... You'll have your five weeks. I'll, yeah, in... we'll honour your existing leave and then you can start. Yeah, okay. 6th <laughs> of February. Think, yeah. I'll be back in the UK on 6th of February. So we could start <laughs> okay. this maybe on the 9th. Give me a couple of days to, you know, rest up a bit. Get over the jet lag, yeah. That's going to confuse yeah. some people listening because actually that's a day after this episode was going to come out. So Yes. <laughs> well, it's good oh, to leave no, a peek behind the curtain. Yeah, because <laughs> guess what, listeners? We don't record these on the same day we release them. <laughs> <gasps> oh, trade secrets, trade secrets. Yeah, it's actually 2014 now when we're recording this. <laughs> We've been well ahead. <laughs> well, I think we can shake your hand, Chris, on this job Abs offer, absolutely so. yes absolutely shake 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 mm -hmm. congratulations 
Thank um, you very much. Hope you have a lovely holiday before you start. Yeah. And I hope you'll let us come in and uh, use your podcast studio in your oh, complex yes, at some point. Absolutely. That's... <laughs> On the condition that we have djembe drums somewhere in the <laughs> yeah. episode. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, it's, it's been, been a lot of fun. Great fun. It's, I've really had a. Re- I've had a great time. Thank you very much. It's. it's oh, been great. Really, really enjoyable and and a fabulous way to spend a couple of hours. Thank you, Chris. Really glad you enjoyed it. Really appreciate it. Yeah. enjoyed that little snippet uh from some of the music that chris has made that was uh tumaranke and the album is called inside the chicken's mouth and it sounded bloody brilliant yeah do you know what else is inside the chicken's mouth what's that the words (laughs) (laughs) so you thought i was gonna say something like grain didn't you Full of surprises. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well. Um... But Jordan, when's the next episode coming <laughs> oh, out? Okay. <laughs> it's not on the nineteenth of February, is it? Oh well. Would you, Adam, and believe it? It is. <laughs> oh no! I'm busy that day. Oh well, yeah. Oh, we won't bother then. I guess we'll just wait until you're free, will we? Let me just uh, make some little amendments (laughs) to my diary. Oh, actually, now I am free on the 19th of February. Oh, well, I'm glad we could be a sloppy second. I don't want you anymore, mate. (laughs) No, because you know what it was? It was really silly. I actually had it marked in my diary, something there, and I thought, oh, I'm busy. But actually, what I had in my diary was listen to episode 13 of the Careers Mayor podcast. Well, isn't that lucky? Do you know who's going to be on that episode? It's a secret. <laughs> Shh, we'll never Shh. tell until it comes out, <laughs> and then we'll tell. We'll tell you then. <laughs> but it's a very, very funny and interesting person, and you're going to really enjoy it. And as an even bigger treat for you, because you've been so good, haven't you, um, all you lovely listeners, we're going to play out on some more of uh, Chris's wonderful music. And we hope to see you in the next episode.